go to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. I had a really interesting phone call this week from a, a staff member of a church in Texas that was calling me to do a background check on a young couple from our church who has moved there. We had a young couple who moved from California to Texas. They have found a new church. They're starting to serve, and they wanted to do their due diligence and find out about this couple. So we talked for a few minutes, and then I, you know, I gave my endorsement and told them they were awesome and that they could walk on water and all of that. And, <laughs> and, and then right when we were about to hang up, the guy goes, hey, can I ask you a weird question? He goes, what's it like being a pastor in California? <laughs> And then he said, he goes, I, I, I don't want to sound inappropriate, but are there any good churches out there? And, and then he said these words, he goes, are, are, aren't all the churches shutting down? And I thought, what, a, what an interesting perspective on our context here. It's like, is there, is there anybody in your whole state that's even Christian? And I thought, what, what, what an interesting outsider perspective on our Context. Have you, have you learned over the years that context matters? Understanding context matters because understanding context affects our perspective. And perspective influences what we see and how we respond to what we see. If I am having dinner with you and I offer you coffee at the end of the meal, you might interpret that as an invitation to stay longer. But, but there are other cultures where it's the opposite. If I offer you coffee, I'm actually sending the message, okay, it's been great. <laughs> time to let these great people go home. We're, we're, it's time to start the goodbye process. Different contexts and different cultures interpret things differently. I know somebody who um, doesn't have a lot of... Um, understanding about emojis and texting shorthand. And they thought that LOL meant lots of love instead of laugh out loud. And so they responded to this really tragic situation in a text. And they said, I can't believe they're gone. LOL. <laughs> and and that, that's not a tragic blunder. That's not like, that's not like the world's worst faux pas. But if we misunderstand context, it changes things, doesn't it? Do you remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus and the disciples had been invited to a wedding? And in the middle of the reception party, the host ran out of wine. So Mary makes a statement that I've always thought seemed a little bit passive, a little bit indirect. She says to Jesus, they have no more wine. And he understood that she was saying, hey, I want you to do something about the problem. But do you remember how he responded? In, in verse 4 of John 2, Jesus says, woman, why are you involving me? My time has not yet come. Did, did you ever call your mom woman? I saw Silas when I came in, and I just wondered if Silas is oversleeping and Jessica is trying to get him moving, does he ever say, woman, <laughs> I'm not ready to get out of bed yet? That, that would not fly in my home, at least when I was growing up. If I called my mom woman, my dad would have made sure that was the only time that that happened. 
But see, when we look into the cultural context, we learned that woman was not a sign of disrespect. It would have been more similar to saying ma'am. But context matters, doesn't it? And having an ability to, to see a moment or a context and then know how to respond is essential. Here, look up real quick at this um, super popular, very old stereogram. This stereogram was, was sketched over 100 years ago. It's about 130 years old. But, and you've seen it before. But what do you see first when you look at this picture? Who sees the bunny rabbit? Now the duck? How many of you are going crazy because your eyes are just, you see both? It's kind of funny. They say that, this is so, so weird. The closer you get to Easter, the more readily people see the bunny. <laughs> they actually say that. But this little simple drawing has been used forever to just remind people about the significance of perspective. And where we're looking and what we're seeing helps us know how to respond to the context. So here at the beginning of 2024, as we're approaching a new year, we are living out our lives and our faith inside a cultural context. And in 1 Peter... The apostle gives us a perspective on how to live our cultural and our historical moment. But, but super quick, though, before we read the text, um, what is our cultural moment like? What's the backdrop that we're living the Christian faith out up against? I, I don't know if everybody here would, would say you're a person of faith or you're a Christian, but whether you're exploring faith or you're super devout, What's the context that you're in? Let me just rattle off four things super quick, and we, we could mention 50. But specifically regarding faith and Christianity in America, a, a couple of these are just my observations, but a couple of these are, are recent findings and the result of recent studies. But number one, I think I would say that when we look at this cultural moment that we're living in, as it pertains to the Christian faith in America, people seem to be increasingly um, uh, uh, indifferent to Christianity. People seem to be increasingly indifferent to the Christian faith. I don't know if you experience this where you are or where you relate, but the mantra of a post-Christian culture is been there, done that, moving on. Thank you very much. That, that's kind of the mentality. It doesn't mean that people aren't spiritual in our country. I think this is so amazing. It blows me away. All of our technological advances have not quenched a hunger for spirituality in people. The, the, more, the smarter we get, the more we discover that's not doing away with spirituality. That's good news. We are as hungry as ever in our country to connect with the universe, to find a higher power. The bad news for the church is that the Christian church is increasingly seen as a failed attempt at meeting that need. So a lot of people would describe themselves, number two, as being spiritual but not religious. Have you heard people use those terms before? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Been there, done that. Hey, listen, regarding the church, we, we lived through the purity culture. We lived through the prosperity gospel. 
We've lived through legalistic teachings and the moral majority and the religious right, and we don't want to go there anymore. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. <clears throat> or I love Jesus, but not the church. And I get that. I get why people would say things like that. You know, there, there's a very... Um, there's a very interesting phenomenon happening, though, in our day. There's a, there's a movement among Gen Zers that, that seems to be uh, an infatuation with all things pre-internet. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. There, there's this fascination for life that, that's different than what we're living and experiencing. Um, let me give you point number three here. Point number three is that we are connected, but oh, so lonely. And this isn't just my observation. This is the result of current surveys and studies being done on human loneliness. We are connected, but we're oh, so lonely. These Gen Zers are realizing that there's something to, to be lived that, that the world isn't providing. Despite the radical interconnectedness of our world today, People are more lonely and isolated than ever. These Gen Zers are, are fascinated with all things pre-internet. So vintage records have been popular for a long time, of course. But there's this swelling interest in, um, what, what was it like to use a payphone? <laughs> what was it like before TikTok? What did people do with their time before they had online games? I mean, what was life like? There seems to be a fascination with, with how did people relate and live. And I, I know this is so obvious, but studies are saying that, that the, the interconnectedness of social media is not meeting the needs of people on social media. So yes, a big platform and an interactive following can give you a hit of dopamine. It makes us feel good but it doesn't meet the ache and the hunger for a tribe, for an intimate friendship, for belonging. And these Gen Zers are saying, there's gotta be something out there that I'm not experiencing. It's really interesting to me that, that two of the leading anti-pornography movements and anti-alcohol movements are being led by young people. There's this swell of young people saying that, that virtual sex is not actually helping our real relationships. And the promise of alcohol and all of that world, it's not actually helping our real lives and relationships. There's got to be something more. Number four, just one more. I think um, what's so obvious, in fact, Christina even prayed about it, is that we're not only um, lonely and um, indifferent and all of those things, we are also fractured and fracturing further. Did you know that we're going to have a presidential election this year? <laughs> Am I the first one to tell you that? Just, I don't know if you heard. That is not going to be a hand-holding, national, let's all manifest the spirit of brotherly love moment. We're fracturing, and we're fracturing further. And it is into cultural moments like this it's into context like that that God sends a church to live differently 
to model a different reality and to somehow provide a different kind of hope for the world. And in this little book of 1 Peter, the apostle gives us an insight into what that might look like. So if you're in 1 Peter chapter 1, let me read you a couple of verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, who's writing in the 60s, first century, gives us wisdom that applies as if it was written yesterday. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let me read that one more time, but let me delete the locations. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Elect exiles. What, What does it mean to be God's elect? What is election? Who are the elect? If you've been around church for a while or you've been in theological studies, you've heard people talk about election or the elect or how do you know if you're one of the elect? What, what, what is election and what does election have to do with our cultural moment? If you're new to church or you're still exploring Christianity, let me introduce you to one of the raging debates that's been happening all through church history And it's this debate about election. It it hinges on a question. Here's a question. Regarding the Christian faith, does God choose you or do you choose God? Are you here today as a person of faith because God wanted you to be a person of faith Or are you a person of faith because you believed? And that's what faith means. And since I believed, I'm a person of faith. Are you here because you wanted to be here? Or do you want to be here because God wants you to be here? And and by the way, how much does the question even matter? Did God choose you or did you choose God? Does it really matter? See, it, it is possible to get really uptight about theological questions that don't matter very much. But this question matters Because the way we answer the question affects our perspective and how we respond in a moment. Do we we believe that God is in charge of everything and he's going to sovereignly do whatever he wants and that's where all of our effort goes? Or do we spend our energy pleading with people and reasoning with people and, and trying to touch their heart and trying to get them to respond to God? People put down anchors on either side of this question. And you have the God's sovereignty camp that points fingers over here. And then you have the the camp that believes in freedom and choice. and, And each group says that the other group is 
more heretical or less biblical than the other one. And based on the scripture that you read, the camp seems pretty certain. Like, for instance, if you look up here at John 15, 16, Jesus said these words, you did not choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. So that sounds pretty clear. Jesus chose you. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So, so that seems to settle the issue. He chose you. And the issue stays settled until you read other verses. Like Deuteronomy 30, 19. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. I want you to have life, but you have to choose it. Choose life so that you and your children may live. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and be with them. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I think it's pretty clear. And the deeper you go, the more you find this tension and you find this, both of these working. I think that it's pretty clear that the answer can't just be a simple either or. It has to be both. And stay with me on this thought experiment because this affects how we live our lives today. It has to be both. God initiates, we respond. Um, you wouldn't be here without God, but you have to respond to God. God called you before the creation of the world. We just read that. And yet you have to step into that calling. See, that's what elect means. Elect is a big theological word that gets tons of attention, tons of debate. Um, elect means chosen. Election is chosenness. It means before you were born, whether you're 21 or 65, before you were born, God knew you. And the God who predated the creation of this world looked through the halls of human history, looked at all of human possibility, and God wanted you. And God attached a destiny to your life. He chose you. Now, you have to respond to the choosing, but you're still chosen. In fact, are any of you still watching the TV show, The Chosen? The, the, has anybody not seen The Chosen? You're afraid to admit it. <laughs> Everybody loves the Jesus character, of course. This actor who's playing Jesus is just amazing. Um, but, but The Chosen is actually about the followers. It's about the chosen ones who follow Jesus. And these original chosen ones are archetypes. They show you and me what it's like to follow Jesus um, in our generation. Being chosen before the foundation of the world means something very profound for you. 
It means that you are attached to something that predated and will outlast whatever it is that you're living through today. See, the, the things we go through as humans, they affect us so deeply because we are tethered to the present moment in this time-space movement. But being chosen, being elect, means there's something that predated this and will outlast it. That means if you are living through a moment that is horrible, there's good news. There's more. And if you're living in a moment that's really good, there's still good news. It gets better. To be elect means to know that I am chosen and my life is not drifting on the surface or with the current of whatever's happening right now. It's attached to a deeper anchor and a more powerful buoy and something that predates and outlasts what I'm living through today. And by the way, what is our destiny, by the way? If we're chosen, if there, if there was a destiny attached to your name before you were born, what is that destiny? We already read it, so let, let me just read it one more time. Paul said, or Peter rather, said, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the nations, he said, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Being chosen means that you were called to be holy in your generation. Now, before that overwhelms you, or bores you to tears. Can I tell you about the very first full-length sermon I ever preached? <laughs> I, I, the, the first sermon I preached was not a full-length sermon. It was teen leadership night at our church. I was asked, and I volunteered to teach, and I preached two sermons in seven minutes because I only knew three minutes' worth of content on any given subject. And I preached a sermon on the generation gap, and then I preached about Moses' first encounter with God. Seven minutes. <laughs> the, my second sermon went a little bit better than that. I was a young adult, so it was a couple years later. And I was preaching about one of David's mighty men. Got, this guy's name was Eleazar. This was the guy, if you remember the story, who was with David. This whole host of Philistines came at them, and the two of them beat back this entire army. Eleazar fought so intensely that his hand stuck to his sword. And that, that image actually speaks to this whole idea of God's initiation and our response, because Eleazar means the Lord is my helper. God helped him overcome these obstacles, but he had to swing his sword until his hand cramped around the handle. So God worked and he responded, but I preached my heart out. It was probably about 10 or 11 minutes. When I was done, there was a pastor in the room and he goes, man, that was really good. He goes, you should have kept preaching. And I said, well, that's all I knew. <laughs> but, but my very first full length Sunday morning sermon was a sermon I gave from Genesis chapter 1 about the idea of us humans being created in the image of God. And I made the case in that sermon 
that in our intrinsic, deep nature as humans, we are more like moons than the sun. And hang with me, because this will explain the whole holiness thing. Uh, I, 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 I reminded everyone that when we were in elementary school, we learned very early on that the moon, although brilliant enough to illuminate midnight, the moon does not shine with an inherent light. The moon reflects the light of the sun back to the world. So when we were in elementary school, we all learned that the moon is a gigantic mirror. And the moon doesn't just generate light. The moon captures light and reflects it back to the world. And in our culture today, we are constantly told to access our greatness, to look inside and identify your genius and what are your gifts and touch your personal power. And we're always called to take this power and this amazingness that we are and project it to the world. Now, you are pretty awesome. Humans are made in the image of God. So even a person that doesn't know God has a measure of genius and brilliance in them because they're human. And yet, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, I think the light he was envisioning is a reflected light where a life gets lived in such unobstructed view of God in heaven and eternity, that it's able to reflect that back to the world. That's chosenness. That's holiness. And that's the kind of light that brings spiritual sight. That's the kind of light that helps prodigals find the way back home. That's the kind of light that actually brings hope to the world. Living holy does not mean living holier than thou. Holiness is not holier than thouness. Holiness is not I'm morally perfect. Holiness is I am living my life in such a way that I can capture the brilliance and the glory of God without it getting eclipsed without a foreign body moving in front of the moon so that it obscures what the moon is supposed to reflect. Living holy means living in such a way that God has clear and unobstructed access to our heart and who we are. And when we capture that, and when we reflect that back to the people around us, it is powerful. It transcends the moment. And that, by the way, is where you will be the most alive. And that's how you will most impact the world. You're, you're chosen. You're elect. God wanted you in his presence. And listen, you don't have to believe in God to have a good life. You, you, you cannot believe in God and you can still have a really good day. You don't have to believe in God to, to experience happiness. You're human. You're amazing. There's a lot of incredible things in this world, but you will be most alive and you will be truly alive when our hearts and lives get exposed to the brilliance and the glory of God. You've been called to that. You're chosen. You're elect. That's how we impact the world. So I have two simple points today. 
about how to approach our cultural moment. So this is number one, live chosen. If you want a New Year resolution for 2024, live chosen, which means in whatever situation you are in, respond like a chosen one. It doesn't mean we're better than other people. It doesn't mean we think we're superior. Chosenness isn't betterness in the sense that we think we're better than people outside the church. That's not what we think. But we do think we're better than certain systems and currents that occur in our world that can minimize human dignity or damage individuals. I love this little story. Maddie was a tiny little girl um, in the car with me. She's super young. Sitting in the back seat, it was just us, and I made a terrible joke. I told us such a dumb joke. This is a true story. Tiny little girl in the back. Uh, I, I, I thought that dads have a right to tell dad jokes, but apparently that's not always the case because I made this dumb joke, and then I looked in the rearview mirror, and she goes, stop that. <laughs> and then she, she literally, she goes, dad, you're better than that. And I love the interaction, but, but, but that's what your chosenness means. You're not better than other people. We're not superior to uh, everyone around us, but we were called to something better. We move based on a different current. As God's elect in our cultural moment, we're animated and moved by the current of the Holy Spirit in the world. Sometimes... God's current and the culture's current move in the same direction. And when that happens, that's awesome. But when they don't, we diverge because we belong to something greater. We're tethered to something out of this world. So point number one today is to live chosen. You are God's elect. But did you notice that Peter used another descriptive term to describe the church in the world. Did you, did you notice those words? He said, you're not only the elect, but he said that you are exiles that have been scattered into the world. Did, did you catch that too? What are exiles? Aren't exiles people who are living temporarily in a place that is not their ultimate home an exile is someone who's living in a place that is not their ultimate homeland. So other translations of this verse use words like foreigners, strangers, resident aliens. In fact, I found one, one Bible version that, that referred to people who are temporarily living abroad. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? The apostle said, you are anchored to something eternal, that predated and will outlast, at the same time, it's like you're temporarily living abroad. Live chosen. And number two, my second point is live light. If we were to rephrase the exiles that are scattered, we might say live light. Here's what that means. Living light means to live this life to the fullest measure possible while also realizing that there's something greater than this life. Living light means I bury myself in the best that this world can offer, but I keep my ultimate attachment to something beyond this world. Living light might mean work hard, 
be amazing at your job, get promotions, save your money, invest your money, but don't forget that there's something more important than money. And as you're using your money and leveraging your money, use it for something beyond better stuff. Living light means I take this stuff very seriously, but it's not my ultimate importance. Living light in our political climate today would mean loving your country, being the greatest patriot you can be, voting in your elections, working for the greater good of your country, but not forgetting that your political party is not the savior of the world, because it's not. Living light means enjoying fun and friendship and beauty and romance and adventure and excitement and fighting against the evils in our world while never forgetting that at their best, all of those amazing, beautiful things are only a preview of a greater life that you've been called to. It's really interesting to me. I always say that, and then I think, maybe you don't think it's interesting, but (laughs) I'm... I think it's interesting in theological studies that the word nostalgia gets used a lot to describe the emotions we have in our heart when we think about eternity or heaven. See, sometimes nostalgia means I think back to a time when life was really good. I'm nostalgic for the old days. Nostalgia is actually an ache for life the way it was meant to be lived, which is why you can be sitting in your living room on Christmas morning You can be on a vacation at the the ocean and you're in the most perfect place possible and you still feel an ache. Part of it is what you're you're sensing. It's nostalgia. You're touching something that reminds you that there's a greater reality around us and there's something more to be experienced. This doesn't minimize our experience of life. It elevates it because it realizes that it, it makes you realize I'm chosen. God planted me here. I'm empowered to live the life that he called me to, and when life falls apart or it's not how I envisioned, it's not the final note in the symphony. You're chosen. You're elect. You're also living light. You're living as exiles. God scattered you into this moment. Did you you notice that word? It's kind of a farming term, isn't it? You are elect exiles scattered. God does that. When God looked through human history, you could have been planted in the wild, wild west. You could have been planted in the Middle Ages or the 6th century. But God wanted you here. There's a lot of choosing that you have to do in your life, but you didn't choose when to be born. And by the way, your chosenness has nothing to do with how much your parents did or didn't want you. Some of you probably had parents that wrote sweet love letters to each other in anticipation of your birth. Others of you were given up for adoption. Some of you were conceived in a one-night stand. Some of you had great parents. Some of you have never even met your parents. And all of that affects your psyche And it affects your emotional state in this life, but none of that affects your chosenness. In God's kingdom and from Scripture, there is no accident in a human's conception. There's no accident in a human's birth. You are wanted. You are chosen. And you have been scattered. 
into Citrus College or Azusa Pacific University or a real estate office or a retail store or a therapist's office. That's what God does. God takes chosen ones and he scatters them like seed. And when God plants you somewhere, he always gives you the power to succeed there. Now, success doesn't always look like popularity or a gigantic following or, or fame. It looks like fruitfulness. It looks like an ability to reflect the glory of God in that situation there. There's so much that we can't control in our lives. There's so many things outside us that make us feel like we're drifting and we're pushed back and forth. Chosenness anchors us on the inside. No matter what's happening outside me, on the inside, I'm tethered. I'm riveted to something that remains. And I tell you what, our world is aching to see this lived. I know people don't consciously think, man, I would sure love to see an amazing son or daughter of God come on the scene. Nobody thinks that way. But, but Romans 8 tells us that the creation itself is groaning. Now, that's referring to the planet, but it also includes humans. Creation is groaning for the manifestation or the revealing of the sons, the daughters of God. Here's why. People need to know that there's something more to this life than a 60-hour work week. There's something more to this life than sitting in traffic and living paycheck to paycheck and trying really hard and doing your best. And maybe I get to break away for a few weeks for a vacation to recoup from it all. You know what? Our world needs something so much better than the tired, worn out Golden Globes. <laughs> I'm not down on Hollywood. My brother's a, my brother's a Hollywood actor. But oh my goodness, we didn't watch the Golden Globes fully this time. We just skimmed. Talk about exhausted. Talk about worn out. I mean, is that as good as it gets? I'm still handsome and I'm 60. I still look young and I'm aging. Really? Like, is this the pinnacle of beauty and success and, well, this is everything our world is aspiring to. That was one of the most exhausted, worn-out presentations. Nobody knows how to respond, how to react, what kind of an opinion to have. Our world needs to know there's something beyond this. There's something greater than the brass ring that the culture tells us to chase. I feel like when I travel, there are times that I see more of this kind of life in even third world countries than I see in our own. I think we Americans, we don't always think, I've got a lot to learn from some of these super poor, undeveloped countries. But I tell you what, I've walked down streets and alleys, and I've heard laughter and seen relationships, and of course we have that too. But, but without all of the distraction, without all of the... The, the, the race, and, and, and you never want to romanticize an impoverished culture. That, that's, a, that's atrocious. And yet, there, there's, there are things to be experienced in this world that are not of this world. And we're supposed to access them. We're supposed to experience them. It's a big ask, which is why the Apostle Paul said, who is equal to such a task? How in the world am I supposed to reflect the glory of the creator to the creation? I mean, it makes for, I think, good preaching, but it's, it's how, do you, how do you do that? Well, the, the good news is that we've been chosen to it. 
So it's not even something we generate. It's something we respond to. Um, I guess last thought here. Jessica got back into a Survivor kick, and we, we re-watched an old episode of Survivor. And a couple days ago, if you've seen the show Jeff, who, by the way, is the greatest reality host ever in all of television history, he took a piece of pizza, and these starving contestants have to do this physical challenge to win immunity so they're not voted off of the beautiful Fijian islands. But he took a slice of pizza, and he said, you wanna, do you want to see what you're playing for? And he held it. He let them all take a smell as it goes by. And a couple of them even just asked, can I touch it? So they touched it. They looked at it. They smelled it. And, and listen, sometimes in our exploration of faith, in attempting to understand life, there's a lot you can learn by observation, by study. What are the ingredients there? Even holding the, the heft, you know, does, does the crust hold or does it flop? There's a lot that can be discovered by smelling something and hearing stories. But at the end of the day, some things can only be experienced by being experienced. And if you're here today, and if it's been a long time since you felt connected to that brilliance or that glory of God, or if you're here today and maybe you've checked out church, maybe you're intrigued, maybe you like certain parts, you're confused by others, there are some things that will never make sense until we just stop running and say, okay, if you're real, here I am. Invade my world. I give you my life.